I completely disassociated uh, from the situation. I was like, oh, it's just like a school with barbed wire and fencing, you know? Um, I was really just trying to, I guess, detach from the situation. Um, but while I was in jail, I was actually strip searched twice and they took my hijab away. And, um, Is that legal? In the U.S., in a prison where there's no cameras, nearly everything is legal. Um, doesn't mean it's right. It gets better because it has to get better. Hello, my name is Sophie Hagen. I am a stand-up comedian, and you're listening to the Made of Human podcast, or in short, Mopart. It's a podcast in which I try to speak to a diverse, interesting, and hopefully inclusive range of people about their life experiences to, in order to learn and grow and just be less alone, I guess. Yeah. And this week, I'm speaking to Blair Imani, and it's probably the most dramatic podcast recording I've ever done. Like, I saw on Twitter that she was in the UK. She's usually based in America doing her very important activism work. And I immediately got in touch and begged her to speak to me on the podcast. And she basically had one hour of one particular day where she could do this. And that was the hour where I was meant to be at the airport uh, flying back to Denmark. So I said, like, give me one second. And then I immediately canceled my flight. I booked a new flight uh, and I arranged to go to her hotel that morning. I had to bring my huge suitcase with me. It just happened very last minute and a lot of plans got changed around because I just needed to speak to her. And she's, <laughs> she's just so important. Her work is so important. I suggest you read a bit about her before you listen to this because... And <laughs> I, I think it's because I want you to understand why why I was a bit, um, like, I hope I don't come across as condescending in the in the chat, because I, f- I fear I might have been. It's because she was young, and she was so, she, I, she was nothing like what I expected her to be. I think I was a bit blown away by how she was, she was just so easygoing, and happy, and smiley, and funny, and young, and, you know, when you when you think about how important she is, I think I was just, expecting someone with like a deep darkness in their eyes and you know who wouldn't answer questions who would just sit and be like gloomy but she was just so upbeat and I I don't know I I hope I don't come across as a bit of an asshole but uh well let's see um I'll let you listen to our chat and decide for yourself first I have to tell you that I am on tour at the moment with my brand new show Dead Baby Frog it's a stand-up comedy show about emotional abuse and on my tour I will be in Ferrum, Coventry, Swindon, Leeds, which is sold out, Nottingham, Whitehaven, Glasgow, which is sold out, Aberdeen, Norwich, Kendall, Milton Keynes, which is also sold out, Bath, Aldershot, Maidenhead, Newcastle, Newport, Leicester, which is also sold out, Aberystwyth, Bristol, which is sold out, Manchester, which is sold out, Oxford, Bromsgrove, Stockton, Cambridge, Colchester, New Milton, Reading, Hull, Northampton, and Canterbury. After that, I will go to Denmark, where I will be in Copenhagen, Aarhus, Aalborg, Esbjerg, and Odense. Uh, in Denmark, all the shows will be in English. Uh, my whole tour is anxiety safe. It has gender neutral toilets, and if you have anything against that, go fuck yourself, and disabled access all around. Go to sophiehagen.com to find out what I mean by all of those things. That's also where you get tickets for the tour and uh, where you can sign up for my newsletter, because that's where I will announce London shows and uh, upcoming tours and maybe even live Mopart episodes. What? And uh, you can buy my show on my website, sophiehagen.com, uh, forward slash shop. My last year's show, that is, uh, Shimmer Shatter. It's, uh, it's a show about being an introvert, feeling like a bit of a weirdo and hiding in toilet and social anxiety. And you can buy that for five pounds. It's, uh, or you can give more if you want. It's filmed at the Phoenix Artist Club and it's in front of an audience purely made out of Mopad listeners. Oh, <laughs> isn't that nice? So, uh... Before I can let you listen to the episode, we shall do this week's Act of Disobedience. This week's listener is called Ellie, and uh, I'll tell you what she wrote. Um, I have to just, a little trigger warning, um, a content uh, note. Uh, This is about eating disorders and weight loss, but I think it's really important. So this is what Ellie wrote. I realized my Act of Disobedience this week when I was listening to last week's Mopart with Kiri Pritchard-McLean. 
When Kiri was explaining her difficulties with other people's perceptions and reactions to what's her weight loss and the difficulty making both men and women understand the problem with their over-enthusiastic congratulations, I realized that I'd never, ever heard another woman express such similar experiences to mine. When I started losing weight about three and a half years ago, I received so much congratulations and validation from other people, including close friends and men I had known for years who began hitting me, hitting on me out of the blue, that I developed anorexia. Within a few months, my male friend would take me to the hospital for starvation one week and try to fuck me the next. I ended up in patient care and haven't been able to fully overcome my eating disorder since. Last year, I relapsed, and another long-term male friend began taking interest in me when I went into treatment. I stupidly agreed to go out with him. We ended up sleeping together, after which he told me he had developed feelings for me and was too vulnerable for a relationship. Fuck him, but I went on with my treatment and used his bullshit as motivation to get stronger. Three days ago, he messaged me at 1am saying, The sex we had was too good to ignore. What an arrogant prick, firstly. Yes. Yes, I am that good. And secondly, too good for you, you absolute bellend. When I once would have obediently jumped at the chance of validation and comfort, I put my dignity and integrity and my recovery first and disobediently made him sweat it out before telling him that he's an arrogant, disrespectful dumbass. And then I made myself dinner. I think that's really powerful. I think that's really both scary and powerful (laughs) like fucking go you ellie that's it i don't know if that's i don't know how many people can relate to that because i feel like and that's how i feel whenever i can really relate to anything i have that feeling of oh i wonder if this is just me (laughs) but i imagine quite a few people can relate to that i just yeah that whole putting yourself first that can be so (laughs) difficult especially if you're already struggling. So yeah, go you, Ellie. I hope I hope it's going well for you. Um, you can submit your own act of disobedience on madeofhumanpodcast.com where you can also buy a Mopad t-shirt, which is something, by the way, I don't... I don't make that... I make like one pound per t-shirt sold. Like, it's nothing. So uh, that's just if you want a t-shirt. Like, don't do that to support me. I, I mean, it, I mean, of course, it's it feels supportive because I'll see you wearing the t-shirt and I'll lose my mind. But um, it's not like a financial thing because <laughs> I, I want it to be as cheap as possible. But anyways, I think it's time for you to enjoy this episode with the incredible Blair Imani. You seem uh, not as... I don't know why I would assume you were kind of... You seem nice. Thank you. But you're one of the most important people in the world. Oh, thank you so much. But you're just like... Well, I think people think I'm oodles more serious than I am actually. Um, which is fun because I'm very silly. Um, and one of my mentors actually as well, uh, Jare McKesson, he's very like... I, I felt the same way about him. I think it's like we give people so much clout and then we meet them and it's like, oh, wait, you're a regular person. Not like we're disappointed, but it's almost like exciting further. Yeah, you're so human. <laughs> um, for the people who, who are listening who might not know who you are, can you give just a little intro? Sure. Well, uh, I'm going to add now to my bio that I'm the most important person in, or one of the most. No, I'm kidding. Um, but my name is Blair Imani. I um, am the civic action and campaign lead now at Do Something. Um, I worked before at Planned Parenthood. I'm the executive director of Equality for Her, uh, which is an organization I started in 2014, which is all about intersectional feminism and um, uplifting people who uh, identify as feminine, um, regardless of their gender identity. Uh, and gender expression. Uh, I was first, I guess, like described as an activist after I was arrested in uh, 2016 at a protest. Um, and, you know, since then, it's just been kind of a wild ride where I have been meeting people who I really admire and building with them and working with them. And now I'm, you know, kind of a full time activist uh, with my new job at Do Something. And so it's, it's very surreal, but it's also really exciting. And so now I'm in London. I'll be speaking at uh, Hull, uh, the University of Hull, for their Freedom Festival. Um, after I was arrested, I was uh, in a BBC film called um, Bob and Roberta Smith, I think, uh, like, Protest Adventure. And it was all about protests all across the world. Um, and so I was in that as well. And um, now this is happening. <laughs> 
So tell me about the the protest where you were arrested. What was the protest? Uh, the protest was, um, you know, kind of across the uh, the U.S. and you know, as well in, um, in England and in France, these Black Lives Matter protests, um, which have been horribly misconstrued in the media. Um, but essentially, um, a man had died um, at the hands of police, Alton Sterling, and. I lived in New York at the time, but I went to school in Louisiana, which is where the murder happened. And so um, a lot of the kids who, not kids, but, you know, young adults who were organizing protests, they had gone to my events or they had learned from me when I uh, was, you know, doing my activism in college or their mentors had worked with me. And so I was connected with a young woman named Myra Richardson and she and I were on the phone for like three days straight, like just in the evenings and the mornings, like if she had questions about how things worked. Um, but it's by no means that I organize what she organized. Like it was very much uh, on her own. And so she organized this youth led march and it was just like a march with, um, like youth, uh, clergy and just, very organic, very true. There were even adults who were, like, barricading the kids so that no adult could come and take the stage away from the kids. It was really beautiful, including me, you know? Like, uh, it was really great. Not that I had any intention, you know? Um, and so after that event concluded, we had marched back to our starting point, which was right, uh, right next to a church on East Boulevard, and, and I can't remember the cross street. Um, and we were met with police with riot gear because they were under the impression that we were going to try to charge and take the... Um, the the freeway or the interstate and you know upset traffic or whatever so they met us with several SWAT cars um they met us with you know kind of full um you know automatic weapons and everything very similar to what I saw at the changing of the guard yesterday with some of the police um and things just really escalated and I was there with my partner Akeem who's also in England uh but is now at the London School of Economics you know exploring and running about um and we just were very swiftly met with just these escalating tensions and it was very frightening. Um, the entire time I wanted to leave, cause you know, you, you have that flight or fight response and I was like, let's go. And Akeem was like, not that he was going to fight, but he felt very fiercely. And that's my partner, Akeem. Um, he felt very fiercely loyal to the community and he didn't want people to get hurt while he was kind of turning his back. Um, and so, uh, we were, you know, next thing we know, we were, like, kind of posted up next to a tree as we're being charged by police, and uh, there are tons of pictures of those following moments, because there are so many photographers around, but essentially, I was, like, trampled, um, and then pulled up from underneath the crowd, as Akeem has, is, you know, not resisting, but it was being told, don't resist, don't resist, like all of those cop shows in America, um, and he had, like, an officer on his back and on his neck, and He's being arrested, and there's all these pictures of me screaming because one of the cops had whispered, really give it to her. And I was like, I've seen documentaries. I know what happens next, and so I didn't want them to break my legs. So I started screaming. Um, so that's basically everything that happened. <laughs> and, then, and then what happened? Oh, so um, they didn't break my legs. Break I my screamed. Legs. Um, that picture, so I'm getting arrested, right? Um, my mom, she was in the church parking lot where kind of the protest happened in front of um, so she's freaking out as well. She's calling me and, um, I was able to like, I guess I was freaking out so bad. Um, and everybody, it was very public freak out where all these pictures came about, uh, came of it. And so, um, like I was the, the B roll entrance to all of the news stories. It was just me going, ah! <laughs> um, and so that was really awful because like my, like childhood babysitter had seen it yeah. and she called my mom so everybody's called my mom but luckily we had switched phones so everybody who was checking up on me my mom could update and so and she had everybody's phone memorized because she grew up in the 80s when we didn't have smartphones um and she's like a human encyclopedia but sorry i'm really jumping around That's okay. but um like that footage and everything just really started going viral where this hashtag free Blair and free Akeem went viral. Um, but all while this happening, I'm getting booked into a regular jail and like spending the night there. Um, I completely just associated uh, from the situation. I was like, Oh, it's just like a school with barbed wire and fencing, you know? Um, I was really just trying to, I guess, detach from the situation. Um, but while I was in jail, I was actually strip searched twice and they took my hijab away. And, um, legal in the U S in a prison where there's no cameras, nearly everything is legal. Um, doesn't mean it's right, but 
uh, even in one prison in Louisiana, um, people were being beaten inside of the church, the sanctuary at the prison because there's no cameras there. So um, the prison industrial complex, as we call it, is truly out of control. Um, and I saw glimpses of that um, where and the women were so ingenious there, you know, as we are everywhere. But uh, inside the prison, it was especially freezing. Uh, well, actually, let me first begin by so when we were in the holding cell. They had a practice of macing you through the vents. So um, also immoral, but there's no barrier to that. But we're actually suing to make those barriers exist. Um, but the women had taken maxi pads and covered the vents with menstrual pads nice. to prevent the mates. We were like, why are those there? And then we got mates the first time. It was like, ha ha. Because our, uh, our cell, I almost said cube, didn't get nearly as bad maced as the, uh, the other cells did. Um, and they would just do this just for no... Just for no reason. We were singing. We were too jubilant, you know. Um, and so... But we saw, like, kind of how women who'd come before us were really protecting us. Um, and then another situation happened where the they had made the rooms absolutely freezing to keep the smell down, to just really keep the levels of morale, like, you know, um, not morality, uh, like motivation, just um, bigger down. And so the women had taken uh, empty soda bottles from recycling during their, like, trash pickups, cleaned those out, and then filled them up with hot water so that they had, like... You know, just kind of like warm bottles of water. And um, and then we also did something right at the end as we were leaving where when you come into the holding cell, if you don't have people on the outside or you can't afford to buy new bras because it's a private prison, everything's profit driven. And so everything's extremely marked up. I think the deodorant uh, was also marked up. So what would have been like maybe five dollars was twelve. And so uh, I was trying to like memorize like price shift the price list because I was like I'm gonna tell the whole world about this and then we got out of jail and they made us sign all types of things um but here I am and so um it was just it was just so awful um but if you didn't have the ability to buy a new bra or to buy new underwear and you were still in there for like six months you had you could wash it but you were stuck with the same set. So what we did was we, like, completely stripped down, you know, like, our uh, bra and underwear, and we tried to find matches for people who were the same size. Um, because we had truly disrupted so much of, like, the regular goings-on of the prison. But we were like, well, how can we give back in meaningful ways? So, like, small stuff like that happened. But again, all the while, Free Blair, Free Akeem is on, you know, Twitter. And I had, uh, I think, like, 5,000 followers at the time. And so when I got out, everybody wanted to talk to me. And so uh, the reason why I felt called to do that wasn't because I was like, you know, let's be famous for the sake of being famous, as we were saying, you know. But it was because these stories were getting so manipulated where people were saying, oh, they threw things at the police. And I was like, literally, we did. But what I saw thrown was a rose. Somebody was like, um, you know, like during the protest, they'd given out roses and my partner was holding a rose. And I believe Akeem had said, like, oh, protect and serve. And he, like, threw the rose out of frustration, but it was a rose. You know, like, yeah, I, I saw that thrown, but we weren't throwing bricks and we weren't throwing bottles. Um, and apparently that did happen. Um, but I was already arrested long before that had happened. So it was like, what was the justification? There was no justification. And so to tell that story... Um, I wanted to keep the situation honest. And so um, I studied communications in the school and I really started to use that. And, you know, that's when Bob and Roberta actually decided to get in touch with me. And then um, I did the film for the uh, the BBC. So how did you stay detached from the situation while you were in jail? Or was there a point where you just couldn't, you know, as you said, pretend it was school and there were barriers Like, oh no! I was. As, did it become scary? Did it become real at any point? Oh, I think it became real. But like, I think the way I deal with most things is to just like find those human interactions. Like, even if I'm in the grocery store or somebody's like racist to me, then I'll like turn to somebody else and be like, "Wow, that was shitty, wasn't it?" You know, just to kind of like root yourself 
and not get too stuck in your head. So we started talking, the girls and I, so it was like 12 of us to one tiny cell, like the size of the elevator, and maybe like twice the size of the elevator, um, with one bathroom that had no way to close it off. Um, and one of the women, uh, Taylor Ely, who's like gone on to protest at Standing Rock and like help with it, like getting people um, who are undocumented in America resources, like she's truly amazing. Um, but she said that she really, like, admired me because I was speaking a lot during the uh, events right before we got arrested. And so that kind of rooted me. And I was like, OK, no, it's OK. Um, and I was arrested. Oh, so we had to share handcuffs because they ran out of handcuffs because they arrested so many people um, with um, Marina Sparagana, um, who I believe is a social worker. And she was telling me, like, it'll be OK. But I was, like, freaking out. And she's like, it'll be fine. Like, she just has, like, a really sweet face. And, like, um, I also did that thing, which is part of human psychology, where you start, like, recognizing people in other people's faces, um, even if they don't look like anyone else at all. But it's just a way for you to, like, find uh, familiarity and just really, like, find yourself uh, through other people so that that all helped it was all like coping mechanisms that i've looked up since then i was like oh look at all those like common coping mechanisms you know um but the thing that really like brought me back to earth was i called my father and i'm totally getting expected to like you know like i said he went to the london school of economics and harvard business school like, he's very posh you know and so when i told him i was getting arrested i was completely expecting to hear like i'm very disappointed in you um, very dramatic and then the background music would go dun 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 um but in fact he was like well i'm very proud of you and you know fighting for justice is very you know much a part of our family and uh you know stay safe but we're working on getting you out and he was making all types of calls to all of his lawyer friends and uh indeed one of them did help us uh get out but that moment after that moment happened i was like oh my dad's proud of me like you know it was just kind of like everything else was like like, this is real, and maybe it's not as dire. You know, maybe it'll be okay. How old were you when this happened? Oh, I was uh, 22. I'm 23 now, so it was just a year ago. That was nothing. That was nothing to be arrested as a 22. Fucking hell. I, I, so at this point, so you said, because it, it, it runs in your family, like protesting and, you know, is that, is that why you suddenly found yourself at a protest? Was that just in your blood to... Had I known that that was part of my family, that, like, my dad had also been doing that movement work on his campus um, as, a, as a kid, oh, I would have been so much more ridiculous, you know, like... Uh, I probably would have gotten arrested sooner. Like, I, I didn't even go into the situation thinking, oh, I'm going to get arrested and make a point. But maybe I would have gone into situations before like that because I had known. Um, and, like, things just really shifted. So after that happened, I got really close with my Uncle Vernon, who actually was a Black Panther in the U.S. before, um, when he was when he was younger. And he died in March that following year. But so it was, like, really, like bittersweet but also like i was really glad that i had gotten closer to him and like learned more about his movement work um but it kind of gave me like context like it it made me understand like the importance of that type of of protest work um but like in other ways my father had um you know like when it came to seeing an injustice like oh like somebody's not being treated right okay well i will use my, you know, like, my different skills to help that injustice be solved. So not just, like, grassroots, but also grass tops and, like, grass middles, which doesn't exist. But, you know, kind of working at all levels of society to change things, whether that's because you have a law degree or, you know, if you don't have very much to do and you don't have, like, a, um, a, a warrant or any type of criminal record so you can take an arrest, you know. So... Uh, it just kind of gave me more strength in those moments. It made me feel kind of more legitimate in the work I was doing. Wow. So did you know about your uncle's past in the Black Panthers before? I did, but like only because my dad had mentioned it or my mom had mentioned it briefly. My, my dad's brother. Um, he mentioned it briefly and I was learning about the Black Panthers in like middle school at the time. And we had Thanksgiving dinner and I asked very loudly at the dinner table. I was like, so, Uncle Vernon, tell us about the time you were a Black Panther. And everything got dead silent. Because to me, it was like, awesome, you fought for justice, high five. You know, kind of how you reacted yeah. to it. But in the U.S., it's all mired in this, like, very taboo, like, 
very, it's just, it's kind of like being a Black Lives Matter activist or what I kind of imagine it will be like if we don't really, um, I don't know, because I feel like we have better control of the media narrative because there's so many avenues for voicing those, those truths. Um, but we didn't have that, you know, years ago. I wasn't even alive years ago, you know. Um, so when people said, oh, Black Panthers were assembled to scare white people in their neighborhoods, there was nothing really people could do um, beyond their, like, um, you know, like people like Angela Davis really trying to change those narratives, but widespread, that wasn't really a possibility. And so like, um, history books wouldn't reflect that. So when I learned about it, it was very much like Black Panthers were these like domestic terrorists who are trying to take over the U.S. with their black angst and just all types of things. And so when my mom told me about my uncle, I was like, oh, it couldn't have been that way. Let's talk about it. And so when I brought it up, and it didn't get that reception, I learned about the other side of it, where my uncle actually had to leave the country for a little while because the police were so after him, like, you know, trying to harass him further, even after he it was fine. But the way he was being treated was as if he was, you know, guilty of something other than just standing up for his beliefs and his rights. And so I didn't learn about that. But it did scare me afterward, you know, like, learning about that um, but then learning about it in context after being arrested, because I was like, oh, am I going to be targeted in the same way? Um, and so there was like, you know, concerns about surveillance and all those types of stuff. But I feel like civil liberties and, you know, like civil rights protections have gotten better since those those times, um, even though there's still far, um, far more to be done. So you you also have you have a lot of labels that I don't know how much you've you choose to use them yourselves but when I, when I google your name so many labels come I know out. I think when you google me it's like Blair Money Blair Money Parents Blair Money Gay Muslim Blair Money Black um yeah <laughs> you only got you got uh queer added in was it June mm -hmm. it was like two, two months ago three months ago well tell me about that that happened by almost by coincidence actually yes yeah. so um actually out of spite like I'm most most things I do no I'm kidding um, but I was on Tucker Carlson which is kind of like y'all's um like Daily Mail plus Sky News is that about right no clue oh <laughs> it was no. rather conservative they play oh, right. fast yeah, and loose sounds about right. okay yeah, yeah. Daily they, Mail or something like that yeah, yeah. on television basically yeah. um I had been invited to speak about um counterviolent domestic terrorism but uh I had understood the request to be about safe spaces and I, you know, not know a lot about safe spaces um, in the context of counterviolent extremism. Um, I've done a lot of research since, but I was, you know, under the assumption that, okay, I'm talking about why communities need to be safe in the context where they, you know, live, exist and should have those liberties. And so I had done a lot of work around that with LGBT activism, but I hadn't done so much work about it as a physical Muslim around LGBT activism. Um, and, you know, I talk about that a lot in this last article I wrote, but essentially, as so when I converted to Islam in 2015, I changed my name from Blair Elizabeth Brown, which is actually like a very English name, um, to Blair Imani, and I, uh, you know, just kind of not like took on a new persona, but I just felt like, you know, there was so much distrust uh, of muslims in lgbt spaces and vice versa and i was like i'm already black and a woman like let me just kind of take a back seat um and then when the orlando shooting happened where um omar mateen killed several people in orlando just tragically that was the first day i started work at my new job and so i had kind of tested the waters by saying well not even tested the waters, jumped full full-fledged into the water saying i'm a queer you know muslim black woman um and it wasn't i think it was just a lot for people to handle especially in that moment um and so i took a step back like i didn't speak about being queer especially because i'm dating a man and um yeah i just didn't feel like it was right and so that had always been part of my identity like i had never really struggled with it like other folks have but because of different times it just didn't feel right so flash forward to me being on tucker carlson talking about safe spaces um which was we'll just talk about it so um it was a lot he was uh talking about safe spaces and i was like well not just muslims need safe spaces um black people and lgbt people need safe spaces as well and he kind of glossed over it and said oh well you're not here to talk about talk on their behalf and i was like 
actually, in addition to being a black woman, I'm also, or a black Muslim woman, I'm also a queer, I'm also, you know, queer, I'm a queer black woman. And so, um, from all of these things, and, like, the next thing I know is I'm getting tons of headlines, like, I'll just like this gay black muslim wants you to pay for safe spaces and just kind of was like oh man and then i realized i wasn't there to like change minds um i was really there kind of as a prop to be targeted and that's why i later understood that so many of my mentors were frustrated that i had done that but i was thinking no like the reason why these conversations aren't changing because nobody's talking about it and it's like no the the reason why it's changing is because these people refuse to listen and want to use people as props um, to, for their violence and for their hate. And so um, I think it was really blind naivety. And I was, you know, just trying, I guess, to to move conversations forward um, very naively. But this awesome other thing happened where people who were watching, like, you know, Fox News with their very conservative parents um, who were gay, for example, there's this one uh, young man who I'm actually going to be meeting here in London soon. But, uh, like were listening to these like stories and stuff and like uh, I think one his mother like brought the article and was like what is this about and he was like oh but then you know secretly like he's still in the closet as a Muslim and so um, as a Muslim man who's gay but still in the closet right seeing that article and like he reached out to me and was like I saw I saw myself you know and so that story became more and more common um, the example where somebody was watching it in the background and heard that story and was like I'm hearing the truth on television, you know? And so it was like, I think it gave voice, or not necessarily voice, but gave like a mirror to people who are living this kind of like, not necessarily like dual identity, but living in spaces like Fox News or like Fox News viewership and audience to see somebody being themselves. And everybody's like, wow, you're so unapologetic. But I think I was truly naive because I was like, if you look at his response, he's like, you're not supposed to be playing the Muslim, like the black and the gay person. Like, what are you doing? Um, but to me, I was just like, well, you must not have known. You will now automatically respect who I am because you're a decent human being. But it was not met that way um, in in further coverage. And I kept replaying the the news segment. Over, and I'm like, well, it's no longer news. So you must just be doing it. Oh, you're doing it for your own narrative purposes. And so they played it again on the 4th of July and I was having a great time with my friend Aisha. And uh, like, next thing I know, I'm getting all of this hate mail and all of these tweets. And I was like, oh, okay, what happened? And I got um, one of those Facebook messages where it was like, do you want to look at this message in those like filtered tabs? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just saw you on Fox News. And I was like, just saw me. I wasn't on Fox News. I've been, that was like a month ago. And then I realized they also have the power to re-air episodes. So it became like the monster that never died. But I got suddenly like invited to all of these different spaces where people who are LGBT or queer like were really like, hey, welcome to the, you know, welcome to the space or welcome back. Uh, it was truly like a welcome back. And so it's been, I think, on balance, like it's been great because I've been able to be myself. And like, after I wrote this article for GLAAD, which is like, you know, uh, the leading like LGBT resource uh, for media, especially like, I remember when I was trying to figure out like, what does bisexual mean? Like, I went to GLAAD's website and then like flash forward to, you know, July of that, like the year, um, or just recently last July, where I got to go into their office and like, they asked me to be a movement partner. And it was like, wow, I went from, like, using your resources to being a resource for some of your people, you know, some of your viewership and your audiences. Um, but after I wrote that recent article about, like, queer Muslim representation, so everybody's like, oh, are you nervous? And I'm like, actually, no. Like, I feel like this anxiety I've been carrying where I've been concerned about people, like, finding something out about me that I wasn't ready to share, it's totally gone. Like, I've been able to share who I am on my own terms for the most part. <laughs> and so... It was just really, like, it's been really just kind of calm. I'm also, like, you know, now out of the country, and, like, uh, so that's, like, an even additional element of, of calm where people are kind of seeking me out for who I am. And then starting this new job where I'm in a very, like, just healthy and zen workspace where, like, I'm an activist full-time. It's just been, like, it's been really beautiful. I'm I've... getting, like, choked up. Sorry. No, that's, no, but that's what I'm, so... So I have a because I'm a comedian and I have a 
I think it was a few days ago, a white male comedian friend of mine uh, mentioned uh, a bad tweet that he got about three years ago about someone saying that he shouldn't have been on TV. And I was just, and he was really getting upset about this tweet. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's it? <laughs> because being a, a woman speaking out in almost oh, any field, but you just talked about like getting hate tweets with like a big smile on your face. Is that because you can kind of um, weigh it up against the fact that you're also just incredibly fucking important to a lot of people? Or does it get to you? It totally gets to me. Um, great example of this. I got a credible death threat. Um, are you familiar with Tor browsers? It's like no, the dark web. Uh, yeah. yeah. So all of that jazz, right? It's where yeah. people, um, I think it was invented by like the US military or something. Jesus. I should really watch a documentary about it so I can know what I'm talking about. But one day. Mm. So um, basically, it hides your, it scrambles your IP address. So where if you send an email from Ohio, which is much more likely given where the broadcast was aired mm. um you can make it seem like you're coming from chechnya or like right. japan and so there's no way to track it um so i got this credible death threat saying that this person is going to find me if i didn't get out of the country and you know all type of islamophobic things like i'm going to fry you up with bacon bits and you know feed you to your mother or something awful um and i think it was more graphic than that i think that was like a dulled down version so i'm hyperventilating like um my partner, Akeem, he had just come home and, like, I'm hyperventilating. I'm freaking out because, like, somebody just very, like, intimately threatened your life and there's no way for you to, like, locate them. And so he's like, Blair, just calm down. And I was like, no. And the way I totally react to everything is, like, time to do something about it. And then after I do something about it, I can go to bed and just calm down and relax. So I actually had to send it to the FBI, like, cyber crimes folks. And that was really bizarre because you kind of criticize like you know i criticize a lot of what happens with investigations and federal investigations rightfully so but then to realize okay well there's nowhere else to turn and to know that people who i also admire and look up to have both been surveilled by and also had to lean on um or you know use the resources that they exist for like for the fbi it was a weird spot. And so I felt so human during that time. And I was still traveling for work um, with my last job. And it was also really great because I had to travel down to Brownsville, Texas, which is like right at the border of Mexico. So I felt like I was going off the grid. Like I was, you know, it was very convenient. I think that Friday I was on uh, Tucker Carlson on the Fox News program. And then that Monday I was in Brownsville, Texas, but nobody knew where I was. So I was making it seem like I was elsewhere. So I felt a little bit safe under that. Um, but, I mean, you don't prepare for that. Like, you don't prepare for people to start hating you so deeply after seeing you for two minutes on television that they want to kill you and they want to describe that to you in intimate detail. And then they look like your friend's grandmother. So that happened, like, so many times on Facebook. Um, but then you also have to, like, well, I think for me, I was, it was, like, I was freaking out about it. I would get distracted by other great things that would happen, like being invited to the first LGBTQ center, um, their iftar dinner for Ramadan, um, also coming out during Ramadan. Like it was like so many layers where like my identities couldn't not intersect. Um, and so it was just like kind of beautiful thing would happen. I would get distracted. But the thing that really just like gave me a healthy way of looking at it, it was during, you know, 4th of July, um, I had just met Adam Devine, who's like a hilarious comedian. He was in Pitch Perfect and um, like he's great. So I had just met him at like a rooftop party in New York and I'm hanging out with my friend from South Africa and we're watching fireworks. And as we're watching fireworks and waiting for this countdown for the fireworks to kick off, watching like J-Lo on, you know, television, um, I'm getting all this hate mail and I was just like, how sad that you are spending, you know, the 4th of July, which is a very problematic holiday because it describes, like, you know, for whatever reason, it's a day off that you can use to spend time with your family. Um, problematicness aside or kind of boiled down, I guess. And you're using that time to watch hateful messages on television. You're being manipulated to hate complete strangers. And you're reaching out when you could be hanging out with your family or literally doing anything else like taking a bath or washing your hair, you know. And so I just started to feel a lot of pity for people who use their time like that because it's really it's almost tragic because it's like I'm literally doing anything else 
and just maybe reading an email and passing, but you've spent all that time to write that email. Um, and it's just people aren't thinking when they do that because I had a form on my website where you could put your cell phone number in and people would send their cell phone number in and their home address and their actual email address and send a hateful message. And I'd be like, I can just look up your employer, you know, like, so I feel like it's an impulse. I don't know if people actually do hate me, but either way, they're thinking about me more than yeah, I'm thinking about them. And surely they don't hate you. But maybe, like, they, no, hate, they hate new the ideas. They they think you are, what you represent or whatever. But I, I can relate so much to that feeling. Like, I remember shooting a pilot for a sitcom. And it was like, we did a shot. And it was really wonderful. I was working with these amazing people, amazing director, amazing script writer. And then every time they'd be like, cut, we need to set up some, a set. I'd check my phone, just, like, delete death threats. And then go back to shooting the sitcom, go back to deleting. And I was just like, this is so strange how this world is happening while I'm, you know, trying to create something and, you know, having fun with my great people. Why they're just doing, they're trying to destroy something whilst, you know. You, you're I'm just creating. Just creating, yeah. just trying to do something. The best, though, was when uh, Yasmin Abdelmajid, who is actually moving to London, I want to connect you to. Um, she's been dealing with that in Australia, but like on kind of what I would call like Linda Sarsour levels where Linda Sarsour is dealing with that type of hate, not just after one event, but like for existing. And so is Yasmin. And so the really kind of like strangely beautiful thing was like getting to bond with Yasmin about like, wow, it's so weird when your mom reacts to a death threat differently than how you would want your mom to react to it or your partner does. And so it was cool to be I mean it sucked because like what are we talking about like people trying to destroy us but then it was cool to be able to just have that kind of shared experience and like to just have some calm from it and just reach out to your friends who you know have been through that before and then have that shared experience and literally all people who I've met through Twitter um I met Yasmin through Twitter and then I ended up picking her up from the airport and they were bonding over like shared experiences it was like super cool um but there is that weird thing where it's like, okay, mom, like, I'm getting death threats. And she was like, okay, well, doesn't that mean that law enforcement's keeping an eye on you now? And I'm like, that's one way to look at it. And so <laughs> it's all these, like, weird parts, you know, or, like, you know, telling your dad about that. And, you know, you think your dad with all the masculinity is going to be like, oh, no, not my baby. And he's like, well, you know, Martin Luther King got death threats. That means you're making a difference. And so nobody ever reacts to you getting a death threat the way you want them to. And so... <laughs> It's been a new part of human interaction that I've gotten to explore. I think that's the, that's the best reaction. Because I, I get a lot of people saying, oh, then don't tweet, or then don't go on Twitter, or then you know, stop saying these things out loud. But the, the best reaction is when people say, oh, good, keep going then. Yeah, that's like, all right. You know, it's what you should hear, I suppose. But when people do say, like, stop doing it, like, I don't, I don't know if I've gotten that very much from, like, people who aren't complete strangers, but... When people tell me stop doing it, like, so with this recent article I did, um, there's this, you know, the show called The Bold Type that came out, I think, two weeks after I was on air talking about being a queer Muslim. And now there's a queer Muslim woman running for uh, mayor or not mayor for city council, I believe, in Atlanta. And so we're everywhere, you know, but getting stories back um, or this thread I did on Twitter recently called Queer Confessions where people just reaching out to me coming out um, because I felt like, well, I have this privilege in this platform to be able to tell who I am and not be afraid of people, you know, making me lose my job or my home um, or my family. And so I wanted to give that to other people. Um, if it needed to be anonymously, then so be it. And so when people are coming out to me and just feeling like they trusted me and I helped them get through the day because they see me being unapologetic, it's like, that's why you do it, you know? And so uh, one woman, she was like, like, I'm a lesbian Muslim who wears hijab and it was great to see a character like me on television, but to see you as a real person, like, feeling the same way I do from that character, it made me feel like it was okay to exist. And it's like, wow. Um, or even more deep than that, somebody saying, like, I'm a queer Muslim, and I felt like I couldn't be a real Muslim because, you know, so much homophobia in the faith space. Um, and now, after seeing you, I feel like I can become a practicing Muslim again. And that's like, wow you know and so um people saying like somebody said recently i'm gonna get that quote tattooed that you just said and it's like i remember writing that quote that's wild you know <laughs> and so um 
those are really true, like true, beautiful things, you know, and I wouldn't want those to stop just behind somebody in, in Ohio again, feeling like they need to threaten my life. And that's also a great thing in terms of Islam, isn't it? Like you're bringing people closer to, to God. It's, it's so awesome. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and you converted in, did you say 2015? Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Or why? Or what led to that happening? Was there like a moment of realization? Or Yeah, it was a lot of things at once, I believe. But it ultimately came down to like, where community was. And in Louisiana, like faith spaces, and actually, I think in the US, probably, you know, here as well, like faith spaces can be very segregated, where um, there's that saying, I can't recall, I think, it, uh, I'm not even going to like misattribute it. But the saying is that Sunday at noon is like, the most segregated time in America and where I went to church it was very like a family church so like everybody who went there was related to me and we're very diverse so um it didn't feel that way but then when I went away to school where you're not with that family like it became very stark where I was like going to just whatever church was closest to me and I didn't look like everybody else which is not uncommon because I look pretty unique um is that a Christian church then? Christian church okay. yeah and then like it would there was a discomfort and I was like, well, we're all here to like, you know, talk to God. Like, why, why is there this discomfort? And the only place where I didn't feel kind of that like baggage of like having to explain or justify who I was with it was within Islam because it's very much like a faith. Uh, it's a very diverse faith. Like there are Muslims everywhere um, and like large populations. And I think if you look at the pie chart of like who is Muslim, it's like an even like I think five way split. Um, and then you have like the different intersections thereupon, and there's so many different expressions of the faith. And I believe it's you know it's the same way in Christianity, but I don't think it's necessarily like celebrated as much, uh, or at least in my experience. And I think because of the way Islamophobia has played out with these you know kind of uh, scapegoating with different you know terror acts, and the way the community is just constantly inundated with hatred, it's been a time of unifying, I guess um against a common oppressor a common narrative and so that has that all like i think culminated in me walking into a mosque for the first time and me not having to tell people where i was from um not having to tell people what race i was because it was not i guess it was just wasn't a concern there's also like different layers of it as far as like light skin privilege and a lot of things that um come with who i am and so that obviously like influenced it but after being in those spaces and like learning further about like the legacy of like black American Islam and how a lot of people who were enslaved from Africa coming to the Americas were Muslim. And so um, it just became, and especially cause I was learning history at the, at the same time in, in university, like it all really just came together and it just felt so right. You know, even even with the concern about like me having to explain this new part of myself to my mom, like it, I was just so much happier. I just felt like so much more at peace. And it was something like I was, you know, I was converting to Islam to get closer to God. And I truly felt that I was, cause I'd never felt really religious before um, that. And then I just felt like since I had converted, like things just fell into place in like a really beautiful way. Like I met Akeem um, whose name is Akeem Muhammad, I met him four days after I took the Shahada and, like, officially converted to Islam. And so, like, you know, you speak to his father and he's like, that's meant to be, you know. But those meant-to-be moments have really just felt more, um, you know, just an increased amount. And so um, I speak to different faith groups about it. And so it's, like, not necessarily perhaps because I'm a Muslim that that's happening, but I think any time where you can be who you are um, and just feel like complete and full and who you are great things happen and did it come easily i mean you did you like how long did it take before you started wearing the hijab oh a year yeah. um yeah because i would you know i would wear it to go to the mosque during juma prayers on fridays and i was in louisiana and there was one incident where i was nearly run off the road because people were just so upset that i was you know like a muslim in hijab and um I didn't completely understand that discrimination because I had just converted, you know? And so I was like, okay, well, there's more to learn here. I need to take a step back. And so I did. Um, and then a year later, I'm in D.C. working at Heineken. Um, it was a really great boss there. Um, and I just came to work with the hijab. And I was like, oh, we'll see how this goes. 
And he was like, I like your scarf. And so it was just really like, okay, this thing I've been kind of assuming that was always going to be a difficult conversation or was always going to be something where it was hard to be who I am. Like, yeah, there were moments like that, but I think, I mean, other than having to explain it to my grandparents, you know, it was, it was rather like, again, one of those moments where I just felt like this was right for me. So is the rest of your family Christian? Yes. Like strong faith believing? So my grandparents are very Catholic, like New Orleans, like black, French, Catholic, um, And my, it was just like this kind of, in hindsight, hilarious moment where they'd see me for the first time on Mother's Day when we came back to like celebrate with my mom and my partner was there, Akeem. And my grandpa and my grandma were just kind of scowling at Akeem because the assumption was, and he's not a practicing Muslim, he's a secular humanist. Um, a what? Sorry? A secular humanist. Okay. Um, but his name is very Muslim, so people just assume all types of things. And so um, they were just scowling at him. And I was like, why are they scowling at him? And I was like they think he's making me wear hijab. And so I like whispered to him. I'm like, Akeem, do you think they think that you're making me wear hijab? And he was like, yeah, they're acting really different. Why don't you explain it, (laughs) please? And so I was like, so, you know, I just, I wear it because I want to. And like, I just explained the situation about like, you know, I wear this because it just like, it feels right. It's the way I like, you know, express my reverence for Allah. And there are so many other like very personal things to me while I wear a hijab and so I like express some of those and then everybody just like untensed it was like oh okay but then I was also upset because I was like what if I was in a very like toxic relationship where a man was making me do something about my body y'all would have just like been passive aggressive and just been scowling like that's not effective intervention at all you know so it was like okay glad we resolved that but what if I was in that situation and so then we had another conversation about like what are your projected concerns? Like those fake concerns where, oh, it must be so warm in summer. You don't actually care about me getting heat stroke. Um, or like I've seen it a lot with people who are like body positive where it's like, oh, what about your blood pressure? And it's like, you don't actually care about my blood pressure. You want to make me feel bad. And so it's been it's been very revealing. Yeah. How um, the difference between not wearing a hijab and wearing a hijab, like when you... I remember my friend, uh, before she converted to Islam, uh, she tried it just for a day to just see how it felt. She was kind of testing the waters to see how it actually would be. And she she went from being, like, looked at everywhere, always, like, eyed up and, you know, flirted with, and everyone was just like, oh, make space for her everywhere. And then she put on her hijab, and she was ignored. People were bumping into her in the street, they were... going in front of her in queues did you have any kind of yeah like I don't get cat called at all when I'm in the hijab and that's because of patriarchy that's because it like to some people it's assumed that I belong to another man so why would I bother or she doesn't even speak English um and so that's a whole interesting phenomenon but like in New York where that's a rampant disease um it's like it's another I guess like kind of element of privilege that I like am comfortable with because it it, you know privilege benefits people ultimately and so like while I still do that work of like kind of deconstructing like toxic masculinity and patriarchy like when it comes to -to day-to-day survival it's great to just be able to get on the train and not be harassed and called and stuff and I was like oh well maybe I'm just like you know Maybe it's just something different. But when I wear a turban and it's not, it's seen as me being just kind of like Afro chic, you know, um, or just kind of embracing those roots, then I get do get catcalled because it, it's not that same type of like other man's ownership. So there's a lot to unpack with the hijab. There's also like people assuming I don't speak English. So people will say really rude things to me on the train. And then I'll be like, uh, excuse you, like. It's moments where you can be like, oh, gotcha. But I think kind of one of the most difficult things was like after the election where it just felt like there was an increased magnifying glass on like visible Muslim women and so much press and like conflicting conflicting stories about what was happening. Um, That just became very tense. And during that time, I actually stopped wearing hijab, but like it was very much out of fear. So I made that a point as well. Like, look at how difficult it's become to be a Muslim, a visible Muslim woman. Um, and the people were like, oh, no, you're, like, making Muslim women look bad. And I was like, I'm just being myself. You know, like, I make it very clear that I don't speak for all Muslims. 
you know, kind of like trademark. <laughs> um, but like, I think at the end of the day, all you can do is be yourself and tell your story. So that's what I try to do. You know, you can never speak for anybody. Like I was trying to tell, um, or I was trying to think of like ways to compare it, but it would be like, if anybody in the UK was like, oh, well, uh, this is what I'm going to assume about all black women who have natural hair or all Muslim women who wear a hijab. You know, it's just like, it's such a vast experience that it's impossible to define it as one person's experience. Would you consider yourself brave? I know it, it People usually, ask you that all the time. <laughs> I, know, and I know it usually it feels condescending to be told you're brave, but you're so many things and you're so young and you've done... Cause, so basically with this podcast, I, I always ask the same question at one point and I can't ask you because the question is basically if there was some kind of uh, some kind of war and you had to choose between being in the resistance or being part of the bad guys or staying neutral, what would you be? And I can't ask because you're already there. So I can't ask you because you're the resistance. Like you're so Thank part you. of it at the front line of it. So it would be ridiculous to even attempt to ask that. But when I ask people, a lot of people... I'm not hesitant per se, but, you know, it doesn't fill them with... It doesn't come natural to them to say, yeah, of course I'm in the resistance. Yeah, I'd be out there getting arrested in the front of the Black Lives Matter protest. So there must be something. Is it courage? Is it bravery? Is it... Because I get it to a lot, like, and this is not as important at all, but doing stand-up, some people will say, oh, that's very brave. And I usually say, yeah, well, it's either brave or it's, you know, <laughs> ridiculous or ignorant. Like, I don't know yeah. which part of it it is. And, you know, I think I'm very much, like, in the same way, but it's also kind of like maybe for you in stand-up, it feels like something you can't stop yourself from yeah. doing. Yeah. And so I think the so resistance element, like, it's yeah, just... it's... Like, there are these things that I want to talk about. There are elements of the world that affect me that maybe don't affect others or aren't spoken about in the same way. And so let me be that voice or let me, like, use where I am to tell those stories. And so it's kind of like that moment after uh, the protests where in Baton Rouge where these stories were being told and they were just, like, so either inaccurate or, like, missing an element. And I had that ability to kind of be like hey i'd like to be interviewed or i'd like to you know call you out <laughs> or not really asking just being like i'm calling you out we're going to change it um and so i think that just a part of like existing as somebody who doesn't fit into like common narratives it's it's not a choice you know so when you <laughs> i keep mentioning how young you are but like how so you say it's been like a wild couple of years like it's just constantly things happening and do you ever manage to just like take a step back and look at your life like from the outside and just reflect over everything that's happened and how much is happening, what will happen? Like, how does it feel to just be this person who's now doing so many things all the time and getting like mails from both sides of the fence? And I think for me, like, one of the most exciting things is seeing. Not maybe like not seeing it in myself, because I think with yourself, like you can either become very grandiose or like you can start to downplay really concrete accomplishments. But what I find exciting is that like I know that I'm a regular person, you know. And so for me, it's really important to inspire other people to like know that, okay, like I me like for me, I still have that thing of like me and Beyonce are different people. Like Beyonce is Beyonce, you know, Um but I think there are elements of that that we give to like different activists or different movement leaders or celebrities where it's like, oh, no, they're different. Like they've, you know, they've accomplished more because they have the ability to accomplish more. And so really breaking that down with young activists that I meet or like, you know, peers where it's like, oh, well, you're doing this. I could never do that. And it's like, I feel like almost everything that I've done that has been like a really like awesome. That's a win has been almost either on accident or like not completely intentional. And so what I find the most excitement in is like being very human and being very like real and then also showing people like hey this can be you too like don't be me because you should be yourself but like there's nothing stopping you I mean there's definitely barriers and like different oppressive forces but like as far as like my biology and who I am there's no reason why I'm like have I have the ability to do more than somebody else does like we all have that potential within us so the last, uh, the last question that I do always ask and that I can ask you um, is this. So you're in the delivery room and you've just been born and you're holding yourself as a baby. Yeah, little tiny Blair. And you're crying because 
suddenly there's lights and sounds everywhere. You've been in the womb for nine months and now it's all very scary. And you know that for the next, you know, well, you know, the next 23 years of this baby's life, you know, there's going to be a lot of times when it feels like there's lights and sounds everywhere and it will be scary, but it might not be lights and sounds. It'll be being arrested or all of these things within your life. And you get to say something to little baby you. You can't change anything. You can't make the baby do anything differently. But you can say something to little baby you that might make it stop crying or that it might want to hear at this point. What would you say to little baby you? First of all, I'm going to address how awesome that question is. That is the coolest question. Thank you. Um, shout out to you. That's super. Anyway, so back to the question. Um, what would I say to little baby me? I don't know. I don't think I have an answer. Um, but I do have an answer why I don't have an answer. Um, I think that, like, since I was a child, like, I've always had people like my mom, my dad, uh, siblings, everyone telling me that I could do anything. Um, but like really telling me I could do anything and then like giving me examples in the world of people who have done the impossible and really difficult situations like, uh, Sojourner Truth learning, you know, becoming a prolific writer, um, in a time where like, you know, being black and existing was, you know, just invited so much oppression. Um, and so I feel like I've, I've been so prepared for where I am, um, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't like, it's, it's one of those things where like, I can't change anything. I might say hello, but like, I don't know if I would, I would have anything to contribute, which is really weird. <laughs> That's also okay. That's a nice thing. You could do that by telling the baby about all the things it will do. Yeah. Like you, you got this. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Is there anything where people listening can go and follow you and see what you're doing? And Yeah, so uh, I always, well, not always, if you ask me something super rude, I'm not going to respond, but I always respond to my DMs uh, within reason. And I, um, you know, try to, like, interact in meaningful ways online. So totally, you know, hit hit me up on Twitter at Blair Imani, um, B-L-A-I-R-I-M-A-N-I. Um, and then also on my website, my email. Um, I'm a real person. There are real ways to get in touch. And I will really ignore you if you're really rude. It's <laughs> good to know. I don't think anyone listening will be rude. You better not be. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this is when most of you will turn off the podcast, which is fair enough. You can do whatever you want. It's free. Uh, but for those of you who are left, either because uh, you choose to be or <laughs> because for some reason you like the rambling at the end or because you're stuck in a car and you can't reach your phone or whatever and you can't turn it off, in which case, ha <laughs> um, I just want to thank you so much for your support. It's um, This podcast has changed not just my life, but the way I do comedy and the way I see myself and, and my role as a comedian. And I think it's so powerful that we're doing this ourselves. You know, there's no evil capitalist manly <laughs> middleman. This is just us. You support me in the way that you can support me, be it a tweet where you talk about the podcast. If you tweet the, like, tweeting the person who was on the podcast that's always amazing when you do that just telling them that they were great and that you're grateful for their participation like that always helps that's always amazing but just in general sharing stuff about the Mopart on social media of course helps but then there are some of you who have the means and the energy to support you financially and that is so powerful because that is how I can do this that is how it works because it's a lot of work and I of course I love doing it but you know, I've, I'm, I'm already a bit um, time pressured, I guess you'd say. So, uh, yeah, it, it does genuinely mean a lot. Um, like, it means everything. That's the reason we can do this, because you help out. And you can help out two ways. You can either give a one-off donation every once in a while on madeofhumanpodcast.com or you can become a patron on patreon.com forward slash mopod. And that's when you decide that you will give a certain amount per episode and you can put like a limit to it so i don't suddenly release a thousand episodes and run away um so you give about five if you give more than five dollars per episode you become a friend of the podcast meaning 
then I'm going to thank you at the end of the episode by, well, let's be honest, by butchering your name. And that is what's going to happen now, because I'm truly, truly grateful <laughs> to these absolute heroes. Uh, big, big warm thank you to... Kathy Draxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Winkwith, Victoria Greer, Marnie Biles, Phil Vapolis, Olivia Hove, Rachel Furley, Zoe Cumberland, Maria Mrs. Lindenskow, Josie, Elizabeth Stoppelmoor, Vivian Riddick, Kirsten Davidson, Purdy Patterson, Steph Ree, Mari Fraser, Ruth Harvey, Jane Young, Dan Smith, Gillian Brady, Bethany Dahlstrom, Darshan Bengal, Katie Hatfield, Robin Cabot, James Frew, Karen Threthaway, Russell Hughes, Ida Sugo Larsen, Lucy Inger Ellingson, Maddie Searle, Caleb Melchior, Dr. Boda Cycle Returns. <laughs> you can choose your own names. I mean, go wild. Do what you need to do. Jessica Stuhlfire, Meg, Emma Chan, Sylvia Novak, Kathy Beveridge, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, G Geraldo Nascimento, Claire, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Claire Lamb, Grace Suter, Kat Piller, Heraven Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferreira, Eikerseth, Cherie Dunphy, and Daniel Reifersheed. Thank you so much so much for helping out the rest of you can go to uh, patreon.com forward slash mopad and i want to thank sarah garvey for producing this episode bailey leonard for writing and recording the jingle linda brinkhouse for the logo and phoenix artists club and peter dunbar for letting me record episodes there thank you so much i will speak to you next wednesday mm -hmm.